Welcome to episode 144 redo of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNU's. For those who don't know what it means, uh, this is the second take of the show because it, uh, stuff happened this week on the recording day for the stream. If you are not aware, we stream this show every week on Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. Uh, from the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you are new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got some big releases to talk about, such as GNOME releasing the anticipated and in some people's cases, dreaded GNOME 40. We've also got some distro news for with Fedora 34 beta. We're going to be talking about OpenSUSE's microOS distro, and we've also got uh, a re new release from KOS or Chaos Linux. I know it's not supposed to be Chaos, but I really want it to be. It's KOS for those who don't know. It's KOS Linux. Uh, in hardware news, Pine64 has announced that pre-orders for the Pinebook Pro are coming soon. System76 has announced their new Pangolin laptop, which is a highly anticipated AMD-powered laptop. We've also got some stuff for the latest release of OpenRazor, which is a project to make Razor products work on Linux-based systems better. And then later in the show, we'll check out some news that might make Linux get a bit rusty. And we'll check out the latest release of the Man Pages project with 5.11. There's also some big news related to Richard Stallman being back on the FSF Board of Directors, so I guess we'll talk about that too. All that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux Good News. First in the show this week, we got some desktop environment news from GNOME because GNOME 40 has been released. Uh, if you First, before we get into that, if you haven't seen the interview with Neil McGovern from the GNOME project, he's the executive director of GNOME. Uh, you can check out that podcast uh, episode for Destination Linux, which is my other podcast. And be sure to check that out because we deep dive into GNOME 40 in that interview. So I'll have that linked in the show notes. But first of all, the GNOME shell has had a lot of improvements. We got multi-monitor system improvements. Uh, the appearance of the app folders have been improved. There's also better interactions with dragging uh, between different app grid pages, improved the over overview performance, as well as made some improvements to the way that the secondary monitors handles workspaces. And I really like the way they, they do the workspaces at this, at this point. Uh, there's a really cool way of doing it now. If you want to learn more, I talked about it in the previous episode. We also go into it a little bit in the interview on Destination Linux. Uh, and also, they have the a new ability to start XWayland on demand when running under systemd, which is really cool because it means that when an application needs XWayland to be running, then it will run it automatically rather than having to uh, worry about whether or not it has support for it. And of course, this, this release also introduces the big change of the GNOME overview layout being uh, changed from a vertical layout to a horizontal layout. And this is a giant change which has some people uh, anticipating its new its release and also other people who were kind of dreading the release. So GNOME 40's new overview is quite different, but in many ways it's actually improved. Uh, so one of the things that I saw is that people are worried about the workspace, uh, the overview style of the applications not working, not showing the, the applications as large as they used to. And in some cases, it's actually larger than it was previously. In other cases, it's kind of comparable. So there might be a slight difference here and there, depending on how many applications you have running. But for the most part, it's either the same or a little bit better because the way that they have the 
in the windows laying out on the workspace uh, desktop style is that it kind of overhangs rather than having to be uh, s stuck inside of the workspace. So it gives it more room in some ways than in the previous style of the vertical layout because the vertical layout was stuck between the width of the workspaces panel and the dash on the left. So it only had that much space to deal with. So it kind of, depending on how many apps, is an improvement in that case. So it's an interesting situation because I did some testing to see like what the comparison was. And in some cases it's bigger, in some cases it's like minuscule and you can't really tell the difference, like a few pixels here and there. But also they have changed the dash from the left to the bottom of the screen, which some people uh, kind of doesn't don't like that. But I think it's actually a nice layout because uh, it does do one thing that makes it... Um, it, it makes the keyboard more important. So for example, uh, there's this hot corner when you move your mouse to the top left where the activities uh, button is. When you click that, it means that your mouse has to go all the way up there to activate it or click the activities or then from there go back down all the way to the bottom right. So you got to go top left to top to bottom right. And that does is a lot of mouse movement. So it does kind of make the super key more important when you open the, the uh, overview. So that's an interesting um, complaint that I've seen people uh, have. And that's a, a valid issue because it does create a lot of movement necessary for the mouse when you just use the mouse. So the super key will be very beneficial for those who don't know. The super key is also the logo key or the meta key, or if you want to call it the Windows key, because it has that logo on there. So uh, there's a lot of improvements to the workflow. There's also a little bit of issues for some, but I think overall the layout is much better. And I really like the navigation system now. The way they have the horizontal um, workspaces, in my opinion, is better because it makes it easier to transition. And it also uh, offers the uh, nice touchpad gesture features. So this latest release of GNOME 40 has touchpad gestures for navigating between workspaces with being using three fingers on the touchpad, swiping left and right. And you can also swipe up and down to enter and exit the overview, which is a really nice touch. Uh, but the... The left and right navigation of the of the touch gestures is a really cool feature that I wish every DE had because it does make transitioning from workspaces really simple and really fast. And it actually gets me more interested in having I don't I don't have a touchpad because I use a desktop, but it kind of makes me want to get like an external touchpad just for this this functionality because it does offer a lot of uh, productivity improvements. So that's pretty cool. So there's a lot more stuff related to GNOME 40. And there's one more thing I want to talk about in the, the concept of, of GNOME 40, and that is the introduction of headless native backend or virtual monitors. And what this does is allow you to remote with a SSH uh, connection into another another computer, being able to load a, the GNOME 40 display without having to connect a monitor to that machine, which is really, really nice because previously you did have to connect a monitor and now you can just remote into it and display it on your, uh, your local computer, but it's actually running on the remote computer, which is very cool. So well done there to the GNOME team. Uh, and also there's a really extension, I want, a really cool extension I want to talk about called Just Perfection. In case you weren't aware, this is an extension that basically takes multiple single-purpose extensions and merges them together. So uh, it's basically allows you to disable certain items and also move things around. So for example, if you want to disable some items like the activities button or the app menu or the clock menu or that hot corner that I mentioned earlier, you can disable those with this extension. It also allows you to move the panel from the top to the bottom if you want to do that. 
And it has a really nice uh, option that is able and able to uh, activate searching inside of the uh, search box without having to click it. So when you open the overview, there's a search box at the top and you have to click that search box in order to start uh, doing a search, typing into the search box. This extension makes it change so that it will automatically have that activated so you just start typing. Now that's really cool. I do think that GNOME should consider adding that by default because it is a really cool feature. So, uh, you know, just a quick tip there. Um, but you know, why am I talking about an extension with this release? Well, it's quite useful for a lot of people and the latest release works with GNOME 40. But during the interview with Neil McGovern on Destination Linux, we learned that the developer of Just Perfection contributed to the extensions effort for GNOME 40, which is something I wanted to highlight on the show because I think is very cool. So if you'd like to check out the latest release of GNOME 40, there are a couple of ways you can do it. It is in a it is fully released, but not many distros have it supported for you to be able to test it out. There is GNOME OS, for example, that is made by the GNOME team. However, that is not built for everyday use. It's not a daily driver. It doesn't have support for being installed on hardware, for example. So for those who are curious about whether or not you should use GNOME OS, no, because it's built for a testing purposes of doing ex like developing extensions or just working on GNOME and that sort of stuff. So that's why it doesn't have hardware support. It's meant to be used in a virtual machine because the main purpose is just testing. They also have options in Fedora and OpenSUSE. So uh, currently in beta right now, Fedora 34 beta has GNOME 40 and also OpenSUSE has a beta version that you can reuse with the uh, micro OS. And we're going to talk about those later on in the show, but it's just something if you want to try it out, I'll have links in the show notes for the latest release of GNOME 40 to learn more, as well as the options that you can try it out if you want to. But if you want to try it out on the existing distro you have, uh, you may have to wait a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, depending on how fast your distro ships out new versions. So depending on what you have, it may be a while. It could be up to six months even in some cases. So just keep that in mind. This is really cool to see this is re released, but depending on your distro, it may not may or may not be available to you. So if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, let's talk about Fedora 34 Beta. We mentioned that in the GNOME 40 topic, that you can run the GNOME 40 in Fedora Workstation for the Fedora 34 Beta, which I have tried, and I, I downloaded the beta recently, and I tried it out to see you know, how GNOME 40 works, and I have to admit, it does have me pretty interested in trying GNOME 40, so well done there. Uh, and also, the Fedora 34 also has a lot of other cool stuff that I wanted to talk about. There are some small changes here and there, some performance improvements and that sort of stuff, but there are also some really big major changes for Fedora 34. And the first of all, let's talk about the ButterFS changes, so that new installs with ButterFS now have transparent compression using ZSTD, which helps increase the lifespan of flash-based media by reducing write amplification for solid-state disks, or SSDs. It also improves the read and write performance for larger files and reduces latency on regular hard drives. And the next thing I want to talk about is PipeWire. Now, PipeWire is awesome. I've talked about this in previous episodes. We talked about specifically that PipeWire was coming into Fedora in a previous episode. Uh, but this, for those who don't know, PipeWire is essentially replacing Pulse Audio and Jack to simplify the Linux audio subsystem. It also brings pro audio capabilities to the standard Linux audio stack. And what does that mean? Well, 
It allows you to do a bunch of cool stuff, including stuff that you can do with jack. So if you're not familiar, Pulse Audio is kind of the basic standard audio system that everybody has. But there's also another one called Jack, and Jack is more for the pro audio style because it allows you to take inputs and outputs and mix them together and do all sorts of stuff with compressions and, and variety of things, and Jack is a really cool piece of software. However, getting Jack installed is kind of difficult. It's a little bit of cumbersome to do so depending on your distro. Some distros already have it for you. Some of them are designed specifically for having Jack built in for you, and that's great. But... If, if you need to do it yourself, it is kind of a pain. Now, the difference here is Pipewire, by default in 34, is awesome because it has the benefits of Pulse Audio as terms of like the, 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 the simple standard type of stuff, but it also has pro capabilities like Jack, so you can do the input-output mixing and all sorts of stuff, which is very, very cool. And not only just that, Pipewire is having development for having the same kind of functionality with video out inputs and outputs. So that's very cool. And I look, can't wait to try that out. But the so far, there actually has been reports that some Jack related uh, applications work with Pipewire, which is just fantastic to hear. So I am so excited to try out uh, Pipewire in the next release of Fedora. There's so many cool things that Pipewire can do that would make my workflow really, really improved. So I can't wait. In addition to that, they also have uh, set, set up new uh, to improve the responsiveness of the system by controlling how processes are terminated. They have uh, now using systemd oomd oomd. I'm not sure if you're supposed to say it that way, but there you go. It, it allows you to have uh, it, it changes the way that the uh, processes are terminated in low memory scenarios with high memory pressure. And Fedora KDE Plasma switches to Wayland by default, which is a huge change because Fedora Workstation switched to Wayland a couple years ago when when GNOME decided to switch to Wayland. Fedora also adopted that. But with KDE Plasma doing that, it's a big push towards Wayland, which is great because Wayland does need to have sort of, you know, a push towards adopting it more in order to make it, you know, there's there's an argument of the catch-22. It Like, will Wayland be ready to go if no one is, you know, testing it out and trying it and doing all that sort of stuff? And this is kind of a way of, like, pushing that efforts farther, which is really great to see. It also brings improvements to multi-monitor, uh, multi-DPI scenarios, uh, better support for high-DPI screens, and better overall desktop responsiveness with a simplified graphics pipeline. And Fedora Workstation, like I said comes with GNOME 40. So if you want to try out GNOME 40, you can check out the Fedora 34 beta. I'll have that linked in the show notes so you can check that out. And also, you know, check out all the cool stuff that's coming in Fedora 34. Links in the show notes. Next in the show, we got some more distro news, and this time it's from OpenSUSE. We're going to talk about OpenSUSE Micro OS, because during SUSE's hack week this week, OpenSUSE's Micro OS desktop got a lot of work done to make it into the beta quality. Uh, so you might be, might be not familiar with Micro OS, so I'll give you a brief like breakdown of what is OpenSUSE Micro OS. Well, Micro OS is an immutable system that can't be altered while running. Uh, what does this mean? Well, it basically, it's like a read-only uh, file system and a read-only root and that sort of stuff. So when you're running the system, you're not going to be able to make changes, but that's one of the benefits of it that you can do updates, and then all you have to do is reboot and have a whole new system underneath you. And it's similar to Fedora Silverblue, if you've ever heard of that. 
And I'm not going to go into the details about like what's different about the two because there's a lot different about the two. But this is a really cool thing because it allows you to have a system that you can rely on that it will have the same functionality like guaranteed when you boot it depending on you know after you've made you change your top layer changes of like applications sitting on top of it with containers and you know flat packs and that sort of stuff uh, but what's really cool about it is that it also has automatic updates and automatic recovery if those updates ever go awry or something like that but what makes this micro os very very interesting is that it's an immutable desktop system or it's not really necessarily a des desktop because it's a mutable system and there's so many different architectures you could run it on for different purposes. It's it's really cool. But what makes it very, very interesting is that it is a mutable system that is based on Tumbleweed, which means it's a rolling release distro. So it's rolling release and immutable. That is a crazy combination that makes it super, super interesting. And the latest release, uh, well, more of a, not really a release, but it's more of like a beta changes in the hack week for OpenSUSE. The latest changes, uh, it now auto configures FlatHub and installs the necessary flat packs on first login, which is very cool. Uh, system software management has changed to using DNF with enhanced uh, transactional update support through package kit to allow GNOME software to do system updates alongside regular flat pack updates, which is a very cool thing because uh, DNF is a, is a great package kit or not package kit. It's a great package manager. Uh, it's one of my favorites. It's very powerful. It can do all sorts of really cool stuff, including like undoing the previous transactions, you redoing transactions. That's got a cool history system that makes it possible to do that. It's very cool. It's a very impressive package manager. Having that in conjunction with uh, package kit and through GNOME software to do the main system updates and the regular Flatpak app updates all at the same time is very, very awesome. Uh, and also the slash home on ButterFS no longer has copy on write disabled, which is very cool because if you want to have uh, the ability to use copy on write, which is a kind of a, a long conversation of what that exactly is, but it essentially makes copy it makes a copy automatically when you write to the disk. Uh, that's the basic explanation of it. This is really good because it's a really good way of doing backups and that sort of stuff, which is one of the biggest benefits of ButterFS. One of the main reasons why ButterFS is fantastic is the copy on write functionality uh, and a lot of other things. I'm actually planning on making a video about ButterFS in the future to kind of be of a breakdown of what exactly it is and why it's why it's important and why it's a very good file system. There are some weird things in the community in the ecosystem saying that it's not something that they want to use, but it's it's it actually is really cool. And it's also heavily used in the network attached stores industry because like NASA's almost all of them use ButterFS. So it, there's a reason for that, right? So we'll get into that in the future video that I'm planning to do. But right now, just know that this update is very cool. And also SE Linux is now used to provide stronger sandboxing and safety for containers and virtual machines running in microOS. So in addition to having you know, container systems and also, um, you know, basically it's immutable. So you want to have something to be able to run without having to modify the main system. And that's where the containers and the virtual machines come into play. So being able to use SE Linux on that is a big, big improvement. Uh, and this also, this is expected to be releasing uh, in a, the OpenSUSE Tumbleweed snapshot releasing somewhat like either today or very, very soon. So you might want to check that out. I have links in the show notes for microOS on OpenSUSE and also the uh, Hack Week for the 20 project. The Hack Week 20 is what the 
you know, that's the name of the hack week that they did. If you want to learn more about all that happened in the hack week, I'll have those linked as well. All of this linked in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a service where you can have uh, build modern cloud-native apps. It, it gives you a, a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to build, deploy, manage, and scale applications. Support for many programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, and it also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. With the app platform, you get high scalability and zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply point to your GitHub or GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It helps with the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also helps with the security of the apps to be able to manage create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates and also protect you against DDoS attacks, which is the distributed denial of service attacks. And also you can run this code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and then runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Well, actually better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit, which allows you to do all sorts of stuff, testing out DigitalOcean's app platform and a variety of other things. So go to do.co slash DLN. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to switch gears and go into hardware news. First up in hardware news, we're going to talk about the Pinebook Pro because Pine64 has announced that they are opening pre-orders for the next batch of Pinebook Pros in early April. We don't actually have an exact date when they're going to do that, but it's going to be coming pretty soon in the next couple of weeks. So if you are interested in getting a Pinebook Pro and haven't got one already, the next batches of pre-orders will be op will be opening very soon. I actually don't have a Pinebook Pro. I have a lot of Pine stuff. Like I have the original Pinebook Pro. Wait. I had the original Pinebook. It wasn't a pro then. I want the Pinebook Pro because I was a big fan of the original Pinebook because it allowed you to do so much cool stuff and very it was very portable and the Pinebook Pro looks so much better. So I do want to get one of those. I don't know why I haven't already, but you know, there's that. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Pinebook Pro is, essentially it is an ARM-based laptop that has a lot of cool features and the price is ridiculously reasonable. So first of all, let's talk about the specs. So we got the CPU, which is a 64-bit dual-core ARM uh, 1.8 gigahertz Cortex-A72. They also have a quad-core ARM 1.4 gigahertz Cortex-A53. And the GPU is a quad-core Mali-T860. And there's uh, 4 gigs of RAM in this, which is the maximum RAM you can get for this particular type of uh, CPU and motherboard. Uh, so it's 4 gig RAM of LPDDR4 dual-channel RAM. It also has uh, 64 gigs of flash eMMC storage, and it comes with a Wi-Fi 802.11ac. That's just, you know, that's you know, whatever. Bluetooth 5.0. It also comes with uh, USB Type-A ports and USB Type-C ports, and it also has the ability to do an alternate mode with display out uh, with uh, display port on the USB Type-C, which is very, very cool. Uh, micro SD card slot. It has a headphone jack, which is rare these days. 
Uh, it also has a full-size ANSI keyboard. So, for example, if you're not familiar with the ANSI keyboard and ISO keyboard is, essentially it depends on like what area and what region of the world you're in. The ANSI keyboard is the one that's most commonly referred to as the US type keyboard. And this particular one is the one that is coming, the pre-orders were beginning out for next April. I don't, or early April, this, this April is what I meant to say. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I, nope, I'll leave it in. I'm not going to edit that. The other ISO keyboard layout is the UK type of layout, and I don't think that is a part of this pre-orders. We I haven't seen exact uh, clarification of whether that is going to be a part of it or not, but I don't think it is. But this is a really interesting thing because the Pinebook Pro is a really cool piece of hardware, and it's also going to be starting at only to $219. That's it. $219. And we also talked about the PinePhone uh, beta edition, though, for last week. So we talked about the pre-orders were coming, and they are now here. So if you are interested in checking out some more Pine64 stuff, check out the PinePhone beta edition, which is available for uh, $149 and $199, depending on which version you get. I really just suggest getting the $199 because that's the convergence package. And in addition to getting the convergence dock, which is a very cool dock, uh, you could also get a 3 gigs of RAM and a 32 gig eMMC storage, which is basically an extra gig of RAM and double the amount of storage on the phone. So it makes more sense to get the 199 version of the phone. So if you are interested in checking out, I have links for the Pine64 uh, store page to get to be ready to get, get the uh, pre-orders for the Pine Pro, as well as if you want to do it right now, you can get the Pine Phone Beta Edition, which is available already for pre-orders. So links to all of that in the show notes. If an ARM-powered laptop is not powerful enough for you, well then you might want to check out the new System76 Pangolin laptop because this is the first System76 laptop that comes with both an AMD CPU and AMD graphics. That's right, it is an AMD-powered laptop, which is something that a lot of people have been wanting for quite a while. So there's a quote from the VP of Sales, Sam Mondlik. I'm not sure if I said that right, but hopefully I did. He says that, uh, our customers have have long been asking for a lightweight, versatile laptop fully powered by AMD. We believe the Pangolin answers this demand with its sleek, lightweight design and easily upgradable components. So let's talk about the specs with this uh, System76 Pangolin laptop. First of all, it has multiple options for operating systems. Of course, you get Pop! OS, uh, both 2004 and 2010. You also get option for Ubuntu 2004 if you want to use that. And it has two different options for the processor. You can get the AMD Ryzen 5 4500U, which is a 2.3 up to 4.0 gigahertz boost clock. It also has uh, six cores with six threads. Or you can get the AMD Ryzen 7 4700U, which is a 2.0 up to a 4.1 gigahertz boost clock. And it has eight cores and eight threads. So... You can get a much a very powerful AMD laptop, which also gives you AMD Radeon graphics in a 15.6 inch 1920 by 1080 Full HD matte finish display. It also has up support up for up to 64 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM, and the storage can be maxed up to, to eight gig, eight terabytes in total. With one of those being a M.2 SSD. So it also has a, b a bunch of different options in terms of peripheral stuff. So it has an micro SD card reader. It has two uh, USB 2.0 Type A's, 
one USB 3.2 Type-C and also a 3.2 Type-A USB port. Uh, it also has, you know, multi-touch, multi-touch click pad, multicolor backlit USB QWERTY keyboard. Uh, backlit keyboards are something that originally when before I experienced them, I always kind of thought like, do I really need a backlit keyboard? Is it that important to have one of those? And turns out, yes. Yes, it is. It makes it a lot easier to use a keyboard when it is backlit like that, especially with the keys being backlit. That's a really cool uh, aspect to backlit keyboards. Uh, it also has networking, gigabit Ethernet, uh, in, uh, Intel dual band Wi-Fi 6 and Bluetooth 5. It has um, a vi- a video ports for HDMI with HDCP support as well. And it has a 49 watt hour battery. And it comes in, they talked about it being lightweight. It comes in at 3.65 pounds, or if you're in the European like metric style, 1.65 kilograms. Now, what's really cool about it is one, of course, it's an AMD laptop. And for me, I'm, I've been wanting an AMD laptop from 76 for a long time because a, I'm a big AMD fan at this point because having the ability to run a system without having to deal with drivers is just awesome. You just install the system and then you're ready to go. That is such a fantastic experience. And that's what AMD offers with the CPU support and the graphics support because of their open source approach to the drivers, which is just fantastic. Uh, But in addition to that, they also are making this pretty much the cheapest laptop in terms of uh, cost, not cheap as in cheapness, but it's the most cost efficient price uh, on their laptop line, which means you can get it starting at $849. Of course, that does depend on how you configure it. If you want to upgrade it, it will cost more, of course, because that's how upgrades work. But uh, it's it's being giving you a really powerful machine at a really reasonable price, which is really cool to see. So if you're interested in checking out the System76 Pangolin AMD-powered laptop, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to do some more hardware news, and this time we're going to talk about some Razer products, but more specifically, a project to make Razer products work with Linux, and that is OpenRazer. So OpenRazer 3.0 has been released. If you're not familiar, it's essentially a driver slash daemon project that makes it possible to have these Razer products work inside of Linux, which is really cool. So thank you very much for OpenRazer for making that project uh, for people who have Razer products and also makes it more likely that people would get Razer products to use on Linux because of this, which is very cool. And they do make some pretty cool products, so there you go. It comes with some big improvements with the latest release of the 3.0. One, one of the biggest ones is the persistent storage of effects in the daemon. Previously, the front ends had no way of reliably getting the effect that a device had set, and support for DPI stages for mice was not uh, always reliable in terms of getting the getting that information too. So this persistent storage drastically improves the usability of the daemon, which is fantastic. There's also some bug fixes for the Tartarus v, V2 and the Cynosa. I probably said that one wrong. V2 is well device. And they've added 15 new devices. I'm not going to list all of them, but they added support for the Razer Death Adder V2 Pro, the Razer Blade Stealth uh, 2020 edition, the Ornata Chroma V2, the Firefly V2, the Book 13 2020 Basilisk, Basilisk V2, and the Basilisk Ultimate, and a bunch of other ones like the Razer Huntsman Mini and many, many more. So if you want to check it out, if you have a Razer product, then Open Razer is going to be definitely very important to you. However, just to be clear about this as a quick note, 
The open razor project does not provide anything other than the driver and the daemon, so it doesn't give you a GUI in, in order to interact with it, so you might want a GUI to interact with it. There are a few of those that work with open razor, like Polychromatic, Razor Genie, and some others. I'll have links to open razor as well as all of the GUI options in the show notes if you want to check it out, because if you do have a razor or if you're looking or interested in checking out getting razor products for Linux, then you will definitely want to check out these links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. A password manager is very important software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does does it do that exactly? Well, securing online accounts is very important these days. There's actually people who will sometimes say that they use the same password everywhere, and that is the worst possible way of doing passwords. What you want to do is actually have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And now that does make a lot of sense as a policy, but without a password manager, that can be a very painful thing to do. And that is where Bitwarden comes in because Bitwarden solves all of this by providing tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords, uh, even automatically fill in those passwords for you on login forms so you don't have to do that, which is really awesome, and allows you to do it on multiple different devices. You can have access to your data across many types of devices like web browser on your desktop using their mobile apps, using a desktop application, or even on the command line. That's right, it also works on the command line. Uh, Bitwarden also seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because not, in addition to all of these great features, it also is 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source software, which means that the security and the features can be in, uh, can be vetted by the community and also improved as well. And they don't just stop there. They could they could stop there, but they don't. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your account. And I also think you want to check out their premium account because with just... $10 per year, that's less than a dollar per month, you can get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, which is for temporary one-time passwords, and also primary customer service, as well as a bunch of other stuff. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN, lets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their $10 per year premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Again, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. We've got some more desktop environment news this week. So KDE Plasma 5.22 is introducing some interesting stuff in their next release. Nate Graham shares with us some great news on his This Week in KDE blog post. There's, uh, for example, there's a variety of uh, Wayland session fixes for KDE Plasma coming in 5.22, which is great, especially with uh, the Fedora 34 introducing Wayland. So having more features and improvements on Wayland side is fantastic to see. They've also done something that is really cool by doing uh, disk fail warnings with the smart system. So it basically is being able to track with the smart tools 
if your system is going to fail or your disk specifically is going to fail, it can give you a warning prior to that happening, which is fantastic to see. And in addition to that, they also have a new quick settings page that is being added to KDE system settings. So this is great. So when you open system settings, it'll give you an initial screen when launching the settings that will show you a different bunch of options that are like the most commonly used settings, such as uh, light and dark theme switching, uh, being able to choose between single click and double click on the mouse, being able to choose between having the file indexing enabled or disabled. You can also change the animation speed for various animations on the desktop, as well as having access to change the wallpapers and some other stuff. It's fantastic news. Uh, it is kind of a common complaint for people who have just get into KDE Plasma where they see all of its power and all of its features but also it's kind of overwhelming in some cases. And I think this is a great step forward for simplifying the settings. Hopefully they'll be able to make a, like a full system settings quick, uh, quick style or like a, you know, a regular user versus advanced user sort of thing in the future. That'd be great. But this is a fantastic thing to see for quick settings to making it really easy to do the most commonly used things in the system settings. So really happy to see that. And also inside the system settings, when you start using other things, you can quickly and easily get back to the, uh, common to the common settings by clicking on the home button which is also really cool that they've done that and if you want to check out the rest of the this week in linux this wow i did it again even in the reboot this week in kde blog post if you want to check out that then check out the links in the show notes up next in the show is the latest release of the distro that i always want to say the wrong way but it's kos linux this is the latest release of 2021.3 and I usually, if you look at it, it kind of looks like chaos. So I kind of want it to be chaos. It's not. It's KOS. So clarifying that. Uh, also, this latest release has been updated to be powered by the Linux kernel 5.11 and KDE Plasma 5.21. There's actually still not a lot of distributions that have 5.21 available. So that is very cool. Uh, so if you want to check it out, KOS might be one to check out. They have, uh, with the 521, it has, uh, of course, the new application launcher with the two-pane system. It has the improvements to accessibility across the board. It has the new Plasma system monitor and a lot more. If you want more information about the actual release of KDE Plasma 521, we covered that on Twill episode 139. So I'll have that linked in the show notes if you want to check that out. And also in, K in KOS, they have updated the Croeso tool, which is a welcome tool, which uh, Croeso is Welsh for welcome. So there you go. Uh, this is basically a way to help with configuring of a new install. And it's very nice. It makes it a lot easier to do make changes when you first install the, this, the distribution. It's a really cool tool. And I think that all... All distributions should have some sort of welcome tool or a tour system or something so that you kind of like be able to walk people through using it the first time they install it. So hopefully the more distributions adopt this sort of stuff. So I'm really happy to see that KOS has that. And they also have improvements for uh, performance and updating databases for KCP as well as parsing uh, package builds with KCP. And for those who are not familiar, KCP is the term that they use for their community-ran uh, package build system. It's kind of like the AUR, although it's not the AUR, but you can kind of compare the two in terms of like what it is and how it works and that sort of stuff. Uh, Chaos Linux for specifically is not based on Arch. There are a lot of people who think it is, but it isn't. It does have some Arch-related tools, and it does have the KCP, which is similar to the AUR, and it does use Pac-Man, I'm pretty sure. So it's kind of like it makes people think that it is based on Arch, but it isn't. Uh, but it is there are it does share some similarities for sure, though. 
So KLS Linux is mostly focused on KDE and Qt. So the majority of the packages are based on this combination. But it's, it's kind of interesting because for a long time, there were some people saying that with KOS, you couldn't get GTK. And that might have been true in the beginning, but they have changed that. So the, it's, you know, contrary to those statements, they now have the GTK applications sometimes that are available. Like the limit, the number is limited, but they do have GTK applications. Essentially, they say that if they feel the GTK app is better than its counterpart, then they will provide that app such as like Inkscape or Ardor and that sort of stuff. So if you if you do want to check out KOS and you and you heard that it doesn't have GTK whatsoever, that's not accurate. It won't have everything related to GTK, but it does have some. So the most popular stuff it will have for sure. Uh, so if you want to check out KOS and Linux and that was kind of holding you back. Now you know it shouldn't really be a holding back. Now there is something else that's interesting about KOS and that is the unique style of the workflow because it has a right side main panel. And I'm very curious for anybody who's a part of the KOS uh, project, if you could uh, leave a comment below, maybe you want to come on the show and talk about it in the future about like why you have this workflow because I, I think it's an interesting, unique style. It's not my preference, and uh, but... I'm curious what exactly makes this uh, this the default layout you have uh, work best for you guys. So I'm just curious if you want to let us know in the comments or, you know, maybe come on the show in the future or maybe have an interview on Destination Linux. All of those are possibilities because I'm very curious about like why it's structured that way. If you want to learn more about the latest release of KOS, K, uh, say KOS Linux uh, and also the KOS Linux in general, I'll have links in the show notes below. Next in the show, you might remember when I said in the intro that Linux might get a bit rusty. That's a pun related to the Rust language, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. So for those who are not familiar, Linux is written in the C language, but the Rust language has been slowly gathering support for use as a Linux a system language for Linux. Uh, for example, at the 2020 Linux Plumbers Conference, developers gave serious thought to using Rust language for new Linux inline code. So Rust is being used in some things already. Like, for example, uh, Amazon's Bottle Rocket Linux for containers uses Rust in a lot of ways. Uh, and also there have been a lot of people talking about how Rust could provide some very, some a lot of potential. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, Sylvestre Ledru, Ledru, I totally ruined that, sorry. Uh, it's a Mozilla director and Debian Linux developer uh, basically has ported a Rust version of the core utils to Linux using LLVM compiler infrastructure and its uh, CLang or Clang C language front end. So this is really interesting because there's already work being done on Rust in the for the kernel and the core utils and that sort of stuff. Uh, it's not production ready yet, so it's more of like a, a you know example of like what could be done. And there are some really interesting things that related to what is the, the the community and the kernel community talking about whether or not Rust could be a part of Linux in the future. So Linus Torvalds says that he is in no way pushing for Rust, but he says that he's open to considering the pro, uh, promised advantages and avoiding some safety pitfalls. But he says that he also knows that sometimes promises don't pan out. And we'll talk about what exactly he means related to the promises and related to the security pitfalls and that sort of safety pitfalls and that sort of stuff in a second. Uh, but Greg Hartman or Greg KH also says that it will all come down to how well the interaction between the kernel core structures and the lifetime rules that are written in C can be mapped into Rust structures and lifetime rules for drivers in Rust to be able to use them properly. He says that that's going to take a, a lot of careful work by the developers wanting to hook this all up. And he does say he wishes them the best. So this is really interesting. And But why does it matter? Well, 
Rust has become popular because it reportedly lends itself more easily to writing secure software. So Samartha Chandrasekhar, I probably said that wrong, but I did my best, is a uh, AWS product manager, said that it helps ensure thread safety and prevent memory-related errors, such as buffer overflows that can lead to security vulnerabilities. Also, Alex Gaynor and Jeffrey Thomas at the 2019 Linux Security Summit said that about two-thirds of the Linux kernel vulnerabilities came from memory safety issues. And in theory, Rust can completely avoid these by using Rust's inherently safer API programming interfaces or application programming interfaces, aka APIs. So also Linux developer Nelson Elhedge also said that wrong, probably, sorry. In his series, uh, his summary of the plumber's meeting on Rust and Linux added that Linux Rust proponents aren't really proposing for a complete rewrite of Linux kernel into Rust. They're just focused on making it possible that moving forward, that new code might be written in Rust and there needs to be some stuff to be, you know, making all of the plumbing work together to make this happen. And it's really interesting. We have to wait and see what happens if Rust becomes an important factor in terms of, of Linux, but it makes it somewhat easier for people to get started to making code if Rust is a part of it because C is a language that has been around for a very long time and it's probably one of the most complicated languages. That's why there's been multiple you know, iterations of like derivatives like C++ and C Sharp and those sorts of things to kind of make it easier to write code rather than how C works. And Rust is kind of like trying to do the similar thing, but still stay really super low level in terms of like how it interacts with the kernel and how it interacts with hardware and that sort of stuff. So it's really interesting to see what would happen if that Rust is, whether or not Rust becomes part of the Linux kernel in the future. And if it does, well, I'll let you know in a follow-up episode because I will be paying attention to this because this is really interesting to me. But if you'd like to learn more about this now, you'll find links in the show notes below. Next on the show, let's talk about Man Pages. This is the latest release of Man Pages 5.11. So for those who are not familiar, Man Pages are a very critical part of learning how a particular program or, or command line t- tool works inside of Linux. So for example, if you ever run man space whatever, that you're running a man page to, you're running this project to see what's in that man page is listing. So this is a very critical piece of, you know, learning how docu- like the documentation for a particular, uh, you know, tools inside of Linux, like for example, you could do man space bash and learn about how bash works or any particular tool. Although the bash uh, man page is gigantic. So maybe not that, maybe not, not the best way to do it, but you know, there's things you can do with that. And anytime you want to run man space, whatever you get the basically man page for it. For those who don't know, man page means manual page. So it's the manual for the particular tool. And this latest release of man pages 5.11 has done a huge amount of changes. I don't know if it's the best, biggest ever, but it's one of the largest man page releases in a long time. So it has uh, like 50,000 different, uh, so there's a system called diff, like the twi- difference between one version and the other version. If you compare those, it's basically like 50,000 line changes. So it's huge. And it also means that there's 950 pages that have been changed. So in some way or another. So that's basically 90% of all of the pages, which is a huge number. And it's just something that it's not really talked about that much in terms of like the project itself, because it's so low level that you don't really, you know, run into, you know, experience it that much. So when I saw this release, I just had to talk about it because it's such a huge, important tool 
for learning about different project, different, you know, different command line tools and that sort of stuff. And also having such a huge update, you know, I had to include it on in the show. So there you go. Man Pages 5.11 has been released. And if you want to find out more about this, I'll have a link to the blog post related to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Microsoft announced that Edge now will support sync features on Linux. The latest dev builds of Microsoft Edge for Linux support sign-in and sync using the Microsoft account. Now, it only uses the Microsoft account, so there are other ways to do accounts, but if you don't, it's specifically a Microsoft account system. So if you want to use it, you do need to create an account for that. Uh, you have to, you can, so you can only sign in and sync using a personal Microsoft account. And you also need to be running the latest version, uh, which is currently 91.0.83. Nope. This rolls right off the tongue. Version 91.0.831.x or later, because sure, why not? And you may need to also enable some stuff for the sync feature to work. So you might have to go in, if it's not working, depending on what version you try it, and basically whenever you watch this episode, if it's not currently available, you may have to go in to change some flags. So you have to go to edge colon slash slash flags in the address bar. I'll have some more details in the show notes. And this enables, enables you to go to enable the uh, MSA sign-in experiment. Once you enable that, restart the browser, and then you'll have access to use the sync features. If you don't do this flag system right now, it will just tell you that it's not supported. But once you enable the flag system, and then we'll start, it'll, it'll be able to let you sign in and everything like that. And you may be wondering why I'm covering this on the show. Well, VS Code is very popular, and that's a Microsoft tool. And I've heard people advocate for Edge on Linux. And I'm, I'm, I kind of wanted to use this as an opportunity to ask why. If you're, a, if you're an edge, on, uh, edge user on Linux, please leave a comment to this episode to let me know why you prefer Edge. You can leave it in the comments below or on the DLN forum or wherever you want. I'm just curious, why do you prefer to use Edge on Linux versus the other browsers? So if you don't mind, let me know. I'm very curious. And for everyone else, uh, if you want to learn more about this, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, more Microsoft news, because I'm sure you couldn't get enough from that one topic. So Microsoft is set to maybe acquire Discord. There are reports that say that Discord may be acquired by Microsoft for more than $10 billion. In an article on Bloomberg, which cites anonymous sources familiar with the matter, just got to love that term, uh, Microsoft are apparently in talks to buy Discord for more than $10 billion. Uh, VentureBeat wrote an article that claims Discord has been exploring options for a sale and has uh, signed an exclusive acquisition discussion with one party, though this party has not been disclosed. Earlier this month, the Wall Street Journal talked about how Discord revenue has increased quite a lot to $130 million in 2020 from $45 million in 2019, but there are also reports that due to the expenses of running the service of Discord that it's not actually profitable yet. So if Microsoft did acquire Discord, it's not expected that much changes will be for Linux users because it's already an Electron-based application that doesn't require a ton of upkeep to continue Linux support. But some people are saying that based on their acquisition of GitHub and improvements there, that there may be possible that we could even see improvements to the software on Linux. Now, for a long time, there has been this Microsoft Hearts Linux meme slash debate about whether or not Microsoft has changed. And I think it is safe to say that Microsoft aren't exactly the same as they used to be when it comes to Linux because they do have Teams and VS Code and Edge all on Linux now in some form. 
I'm still very, very skeptical of Microsoft these days because, you know, decades of being awful requires decades of being good, in my opinion. And while they have changed, I wouldn't really classify them as good. They are still doing some weird stuff, even like telemetry of Windows 10 users excessively and a bunch of other things. So while they have changed, it's not really a big change. It's like certain parts they've changed with it. And like, for example, uh, I think VS Code and Edge both have telemetry built into them. So well, they, they work in Linux, but they also have telemetry. That's why VS Codium exists and etc. So, you know, there's that. They are different. No, they're still Microsoft, though. So that's my opinion on it. How do you feel about this? Let me know in the comments below or on the deal forum thread, which we'll have linked in the show notes. I'm just curious, like, what do you think about whether or not Microsoft buys Discord or if someone else buys Discord? What do you think about what would happen and how you feel about this kind of news? Let me know in the comments below. Up next on the show this week is a rather controversial topic, and that is Richard Stallman has announced that he is back on the board of directors uh, they announced this uh, this past weekend on FSF's Liber Planet conference, and he's announced that he is back on as a member, not as the president of the board. Uh, so if you're not familiar, Stallman is the founder of the FSF in 1985. He served as the president until the resignation in 2019. The resignation is because of a lot of factors that are explained in the open letter that was released to the FSF, basically requesting for his resignation and the resignation of the entire board of the FSF. So if you want more details about this, there's a ton of stuff. There's also an appendix attached to the open letter if you want to check out the actual sources for the things that they put in the open letter. Uh, there's been over 2,700 people that have signed the open letter. Uh, there's also a letter created for support, but, you know, of course, that's, you know, contrary is going to happen. So that's where the controversial stuff comes in. And it's uh, there's a lot of topics that are related to uh, that are an issue of the uh, open letter. So a lot of people have promoted it as a cancel culture concept or a, um, a censorship concept. And the, the, the response to that typically is on one side, they're saying it's just cancel culture and they're just trying to find a reason to get rid of him. But on the other side, they're saying that the reason why they wanted it's because of consequences of actions is that they've stated that he has done multi multitudes of things over the years and has said tons of things over the years that are very objectionable and also uh, do not put him in a position to be a leadership factor. So one side is basically saying that there that you know this one particular instance is not worthy of getting rid of him, and the other side is saying that's not the only reason. There's actually many, many reasons. So it's more of a consequences of what he has said and what he has done rather than trying to cancel him. So that's one perspective and that's the other perspective. Uh, my opinion, if you want to have a discussion on it, we can do it on the next live stream. Feel free to come to the live stream and talk about it if you want to. But I think that there's uh, very good points to say that, you know, Stallman has done a ton of good things over the years uh, in terms of like creating the FSF and creating the free software movement. I disagree with the term free software because that's automatically building in an argument every single time you introduce it to someone. They should have called it Libra software. So that's a problem. But uh, he still did create the uh, the organization, which is good, and the movement is still something that is valuable to the ecosystem and all of that. So there are tons of great value that he has provided. But at the same time, they're arguing that 
while he has done great things, is he a person who should be in a leadership role? Should he have a, an opinion? Sure, of course. But should he be the leader is very different. And uh, th- those are interesting perspectives. And I think that the leadership argument is very interesting because of other aspects of the things that he has done contradictory to the movement. So there are times where people have said that, you know, his interviews or his conference appearances or his uh, panel appearances, he's been very belittling and berating people and very abrasive to people. And that is not what a leader should do. So the argument of saying that he shouldn't be the leader is valid in that context. And also there are some examples of saying that maybe the FSF is, is because of all the backlash the FSF is getting, if they choose to not actually uh, remove the, the board and remove him from uh, leadership power, uh, maybe there should be a fork of the FSF. And I think that's an interesting perspective. I think that the the fork of the FSF making something called the Libra Software Foundation, the LSF, would be arguably more valuable because it would eliminate the free software confusion that's built into the terminology in itself. Because the fact that you have to explain what you mean by the word free every single time you say it, it's not an effective term. So the the concept of forking it to do a different organization, maybe like the FSFE, which is the European version, could rename themselves to the LSF. Maybe that would work. I don't know. Maybe another organization could come up with it. It's just an interesting perspective. And I think that there are many things that... Uh, could come of this and we'll keep you updated about what happens because I do think that this is a topic that's worthy of covering. However, I don't really want to talk about the individual details because they're not, uh, they're not pleasant to talk about. So while one side is pushing towards the cancel culture thing, I think the, the argument against that is more, has a lot, a lot of, a lot of merit and validity in terms of like, the leadership aspects, is he that effective? But is is his effectiveness counteracted by his detrimental aspects and his detrimental actions? Uh, I, I don't know. It's you can you can decide for yourself. But I think that this is a a topic that we will probably discuss in the future multiple times, depending on what happens here. So if you want to learn more, I'll have many many links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, sp- sponsors, Patreon, and others. You'll learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you become, become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium. Why is it a stadium? I don't know, but it is. So there you go. To discuss stuff between topics and just to hang out every week after the show because we have a patron-only post-show that happens after every episode. So join us then by going to dustictuxdigital.com slash contribute to learn more. You can also order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to dlnstore.com. This is the shirt I'm wearing, the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt. And there's also a bunch of other stuff. There's even a new shirt that I designed for the Hardware Addicts podcast, a part of DLN that is at the DLN store. So check that out if you haven't. It's a fantastic shirt. Uh, I am a little bit biased because I did design it, but I think you'll like it. And if you also like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts as I'm a co-host of those shows on the Destination Linux network. Just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to DLNlive.com.
linux.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with DLN. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux GNUs.